Welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Created by two beginners, it is the perfect listen for those of you who are just finding your feet in the property industry. We will ask questions that other beginners, just like us, have been waiting to hear, and we will be learning along with you. I'm Harley. And I'm Guy. And this is the Premium Property Podcast. Hi Stephen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. We think what you're doing in property is really, really great. So yeah, and we think that we'll learn a lot and our listeners will. So yeah, it's great to have you on and welcome. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on, Harlan Gay. Cheers. Brilliant. So yeah, for those who maybe aren't sure sort of what you do in property or what you did before property, would you be able to just tell us a bit about yourself and your background? So I think I referred to myself as a property slut when uh, that's my background. <laughs> yeah, you did, yeah. Um, basically, yeah, I do quite a few strategies in properties, property and since about 2006 was the first property I bought, it was about 1920 and just always loved, loved property and what they've in property. So the moment I kind of established myself in a, a kind of career or a, or a secure job, which I thought was the time, the, was the minute that I instantly applied for a mortgage. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from there. It was a case of just figuring this shit out as, as I go along and, you know, build a portfolio, flip properties, and then um, a couple of years later, the recession hit, and um, it took a bit of changing, twisting and changing strategy again, and just keep, just keep evolving and just um, always kind of doing stuff. So yeah. um, I, I was I was offshore for... Um, for about five years, so I worked in oil and gas industry, and then I, then I, then I kind of my plan was to go offshore, and I had a kind of career path set in front of me. So I thought, well, if I aim for the big bucks, I'll bank the big bucks, I'll invest it in property, I'll grow a portfolio pretty quickly. When I get to a certain level, I'll just that'll be me, you know, jack my job and retire. But um, when my daughter was born in 2016, only a few years into this plan of being offshore to try and get uh, some money together, um, I kind of just flipped in its head, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to sacrifice my life working away from home for half the year to miss out on her upbringing why not make property my my main source of income and i just threw the towel in and just quit my job and went full-time property and that was four years ago yeah amazing yeah yeah so obviously you you mentioned the recession there and you sort of invested and you're right at the start of your property journey when the recession hit so obviously sort of thinking back to that it's sort of a similar time right now so I guess how did you what was it like going through that recession when you were just beginning investing in property and how did you come out at the end of it and what sort of tips would you give to anyone who is just starting their journey at the moment in property? Um. Really, really good question. And yeah, I'm seeing a lot of likeness right now in what happened in 2006, 2008 and what's happening just now. So yeah, there were definitely a bit of bubble and the, and the prices are peaking. Um, so yeah, there's quite a lot of resemblance. I think I was about 19 and I was a second year apprentice, apprentice uh, engineer apprentice. And I remember my wages only being £4.36 an hour. And the moment that I was getting off the door time, it was like, right, get this flat, let's get a mortgage. And, you know, so I kind of went all out. And then about a year later, when I went into the bank, 
the, the you know they had the kind of property index up on the screen. This is when the market price was just going nuts, like it's going at the moment. And they were saying, yeah, you know your properties went up twenty eight grand. You can borrow additional money on your property. And I thought, bingo, this is exactly what I want to do. So I think I pulled out eleven or twelve grand and bought a three bedroom kind of ex local authority house, and it was kind of just did again the two thousand and eight. So obviously, right when the recession was away to happen, and I pretty much overpaid overpaid on that house and obviously over leveraged the original flat so very very early on before i was 21 i think i learned like quite a lot of painful lessons that that um that that kind of taught me a lot actually and it's all good experience and i think i probably licked my wounds for maybe six months until i realized that there was repossessions coming to the market with obviously the recession going on and uh then then i probably spent about three or four years maybe a little bit longer picking up um, repossess properties on the market, buying them, re- renovating them, finding my kind of my trade through um, through property renovations, and then just flipping them on and selling them on for profit. Now looking back, um, it was probably the worst thing I could have done because when I look at the prices that they were back then, I should have definitely held them. But because I was kind of felt like I was digging myself a hole of over leveraging and overpaying on my property. Um, it felt like um, let's build the pot back up. Let's just flip some properties and and, and bring some income in. So yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting to go through a recession back then, and that and I'm kind of looking forward to the next one. I know it's quite doom and gloomy to look for, or quite you know, opportunist to look for the kind of negatives and, and situations. But I do feel like um, I'm better positioned to handle it this time after having already experienced one um, at a young age and kind of getting a lot bit burnt. So yeah, definitely. I bet you learn so much, sort of going through that obviously it probably wasn't a great experience at the time and you're probably a bit sort of scared that you'd just taken out a mortgage and just bought another property and then all the prices started crashing but I bet you learned so much and like you said you'll be able to apply that so well now in the next well we don't know if a recession will come but it is likely that a sort of crash is going to happen in the market. Yeah, and it definitely taught me lessons as well on how to diversify different um, strategies. So obviously, at the time, the property that I bought, you know, they were paid for. I had to hold my backlight portfolio for probably five or six years after I'd moved out of it. Um, and even after that, I think I spent about 12 grand renovating it, new windows and doors, so it was within a kitchen to sell it for 118. I think I bought it for 112. So I think it took me 10 years to recover from it, but it also taught me the importance of cash flow as well and and. I managed to rent it and still make three hundred pound a month cash flow on the property, even though I'd overpaid and 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 felt myself like, oh man, I bet I rut here and we're to kind of hold this property for for long term. Um, and when the market was recovering, I thought, well, exit the bad, the, the bad eggs as I saw in my portfolio, and it was obviously in my own name and the, the tax changes that kind of came into effect by then or were came into effect by then. So I just thought, you know what, we'll just off offload this um, as, as in my own name. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so. Obviously, with sort of property comes refurbishment. So um, I believe that you sort of had a bit of a nightmare on on one of your refurbs recently. So, yeah, would you be able to sort of talk us through what happened there, what went wrong, and I guess how how you've dealt with it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, come off courses and stuff will tell you, these gurus will say, you know, you Get three, get three quotes from a builder, hand the keys over to the builder, come back six weeks later and Bob's your uncle, you've done it, you've bought it right, you've, you've renovated the property on your go, but in, in theory, this never ever works. And um, I've always found that for, especially in areas that I'm investing in, you really have to manage 
the kind of trade yourself or project manage their innovations and obviously build the team up as you go along. So you, you've got kind of working with more and more reliable guys and then you'll kind of understand, you'll understand the, the breakdown of their innovation and, and where to find the cheapest materials and um, how to cut the cost down when you need them to be. Um, so this one was um, a joint venture partner brought it to me as a deal in a different area that I, I was near Glasgow in an area I don't invest in. So I didn't have any guys in the ground there and I thought, do you know what? I've, I think during the lockdown, I had um, they, I think the week would came out of lockdown on thirty first of June. The property market opened that back up. The stuff that I've got under offer, I think within the first week opening back up, I had four sets of keys from different projects, and they were all over the place. Like one was in Kinross, um, between kind of about 10, 15 minutes outside Perth. The other two went up up in Aberdeen, which is about two hours drive from me. And this one was in towards Glasgow in a place called Cumbernauld. So I felt. Shit, I'm going to level up here a little bit. I need to diversify. Time to try and find a builder to take on some of the renovations. So I'd, I'd kind of done it quite successfully in Aberdeen, and I thought I'll, I'll try and find somewhere with this this one in Cumbernauld. So I spent probably five weeks up front, like going through this like the work scope because I was so kind of scared to like letting go of the control to a builder that I had worked before. It was a different area. I just wanted to make sure that there was no comebacks. There was no, oh, you didn't mention that at the end of it, I'm having to pay extra upon extra upon extra and then the deal kind of doesn't work. So I spent weeks and weeks up front with this guy going back and forth, back and forth, looking at the work scope and trying to go as detailed as I possibly can on it. I think the document was in being 10 pages long at the end of it. Like I, I covered everything. Um, so we agreed to a payment term and, and basically it was going to be 30% up front, 30% when they went on to finishes and 40% on completion when I signed off the job. So we're all good to go. Paid him the thirty percent. Um, within a couple of weeks, he's he's at me for the next thirty percent. I said, "Oh, that's good. On the finish is great. Look, I'll, I'll nip through on Tuesday and see it." And I went through, and all that had been done was a bit of plumbing and heating roughing. And I was like, "Well, I'm not going to pay you more. Like this would be almost ten grand that I've paid to get a bit of plumbing heating roughing." He says, "No, no. Honestly, the spark is coming out on on Tuesday, and he'll he'll be a couple of days doing all the rewiring and the the plaster starting on Thursday. And I really need this extra payment to pay." you know, to get the kitchen and get all the supplies kind of all lined up for the for the finishes. So I think a few days later, he sent me pictures and there there was um, the plaster came in and I think plastered a couple of ceilings in the bedrooms and the the, the electrician had been in and done the, the rewire, the first phase of the rewire. So I thought, all right, do you know what benefit of that? It's not quite there, but it is now miles, million miles off. So I paid them the additional 30% and this took me to about, almost 10 grand um, in the refurb. And about three days later, he sends me through an invoice, you know, here's the invoice for the plumbing heat engineer for two grand. And I says, no, this is not part of this agreed work scope. He says, I well, the boy was one that paid at the end and then he just managed to get it done the 31st of the, the month. So he needs to pay before the end of the month and stuff like this. And I says, well, that's no part of our agreement. You're the next payment you're getting from me is the completion 40%. And he started to get all like, no, 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 this guy's going to try and take me for this two grand and stuff like that. It just, it just it felt really, really weird. And I thought, so anyway, I kind of cut a long story short, the kind of communication broke down to the point where I wasn't going to pay him another two grand to be to be, to be out of pocket, kind of 11 grand exposed on the reef or probably about four grand's worth of work done. So um, I ended up having to kind of terminate the contract with him and have to go through court proceedings to kind of reclaim some of the money back. But um, So so quite quite a quite annoying experience, quite a bit of pain in the arse, but... Um, these things happen and you kind of learn from them and it's, and it's kind of teaches you a few lessons as well to kind of up my game as well in the terms of uh, maybe contract agreements and making sure they're, they're even more watertight as well. 
I'm pretty sure I'll be successful in a small claims court to, to claim back some of the money. Um, so the, the difficulty with this, with this as well is to claim over, I don't know if the laws are different in England, but in Scotland, if we go to the court to claim, you know, over under £5,000 of small claims court and it only costs like 70 quid and a bit of admin work, it's not the greatest task. Whereas if you go over that, you're actually taking on the court where you're going to, I'm going to pay uh, legal fees. So looking at it, it's not really worth it for me to claim back the full amount, but I'll go up to five grand and just put a small claims in for them and at least get something back for it. Um, so I bit a bit of lesson learned, bit a painful one, but these things happen, I suppose, in property. Yeah, exactly. I guess that there's always sort of things that go wrong on a refurb and you you can only sort of prepare so much for for things like that. Um, but yeah, I guess guess you learn sort of from it. So in terms of sort of how you are going to apply the lessons that you've learned, what are you going to do sort of moving forward on your next project in order to try and minimise the risk of that happening again? Yeah, I'll probably tweak the, the paperwork up front, probably get a, a, a robust contract written up in place as well. Um, it's, it's quite annoying as well because when, pe when, you, when people go to that level of paperwork, it kind of scares people off like there's a lack of trust in it and it is you know what in this game you kind of kiss a lot of frogs before you find the right person to work with and i think that's in all walks of life and i mean everything i'm finding properties between joint venture partners or investors or the people that work with you just kind of you won't enjoy people and it'll be the same with builders these things will happen um and it's quite annoying because obviously before when if i'm managing my own um refurbs that you aren't very much you aren't exposed that much because if you're if you're instructed someone to come in and just say I'm going to go and do the the plumbing, somebody's going to kind of all oh, the first fix for the plumbing and electrical work, or you're not that much exposed when they, when they finish the work you pay them. So even if you may be early, I'll be better materials. The materials are still yours, so you're never that exposed. But when you obviously you go to a level where you want to develop and take on bigger and bigger projects, I think this needs to you know be more robust um, kind of, um, contract kind of um, construction contract law. Stuff and make sure the paperwork is, is tight so that'll be something i'll definitely be looking into learning a little bit more about yeah definitely and then on the topic of what you were just speaking about with um paying the builders then if someone is just starting they're on their first refurb what process of payment do you think is the best way going forward like how much should you be paying up front should you be paying more up front and then uh pay them the rest when it's completed how would you essentially go about that if you were just starting it for me, like giving anybody advice for starting out, I would always say get involved in the refurb yourself for the first one because you, you'll learn so much lessons. Like get in there, rip it out, strip the wallpaper, have late nights work in there because you'll learn so much on that first project that it'll, you'll mainly understand how to work with builders because you'll understand the process of what they're trying to tell you. Um, so I, I, I even now, I still do all the reports of my projects. It only takes me a day, I just kind of put a day aside against it, get into the sledgehammer, rip it out, chuck all the rubbish in the garden. But for a couple of reasons, one, it shows you the, the kind of makeup of the property. Like if you rip the bath out, say, for instance, and you find rotten, you know, the, the water's been leaking and it's, been, it's rotted the floor, then you know straight away when you're factoring your costs for your refurb to factor in the joists are going to get replaced or the timber's going to replace in the floor. But if you just pay a builder to do it and you've got a quote up front, the builder's going to come back to you in two days' time and say, oh, by the way, we've already found rotten joists under the bath. That's going to cost an extra 700 quid or a grand or whatever it is. But if you rip it out, then you start doing your plan. You can factor in all your costs because you've stripped it all out. You understand the makeup of the building. You understand what problems you're going to find because you've taken it all out. But I think um, I think do, so doing that up front just shows you the order that, that trades have to come in as well. 
um, the order that things get done, how long you'll, you'll appreciate things like how long things take to get done um, and, how, and how quick things take to get done to be fair as well. Like a lot of times people are always surprised when you say about pricing a kitchen, you're like, I take a joiner or two days to fit a kitchen. So why is somebody trying to charge you two grand for it? Do you know people that get paid a thousand pound a day to fit a kitchen? No, they get paid, I don't know, 25 pound an hour. So a couple hundred quid a day. So when you actually realize like how long it takes to, for things to work, you can actually understand the bigger picture. Um, but for the, for the, for the payment term, if you're going to builders, yeah, I, I like the payment term I used with that guy there before. Thirty percent up front was a nice and enough to for them to get materials. Like they could rip you off, but you're only losing thirty percent, so it's it's not the biggest one. And then obviously, at a stage, I had this this stage at finishes. So when basically when the all the first fix was done, and it was stripped out, first fix was done, and it was plastered, then I was going to pay the following thirty percent, and that was going to allow it to. You know, the paint and decorating to come in, the kitchens become in, the bathrooms to be coming in as well, and then the forks end up on completions. You're always kind of leaving the builder, you know, trailing. They're, they're working for that bit more money rather than if you pay them too much up front, then they're not going to be that motivated to come in and, uh, and do the work, especially if you're on a bit of tight time frame and you're trying to push them. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that point you touched across where if it's your first refurb, then definitely try and get in and do it yourself. Um, but for someone that is literally just starting and they've got a simple idea of refurbs and uh, what, what what needs doing in order but they're not like experts at it how would you recommend them to do that would you recommend them to maybe employ a project manager and do like a type of earn and learn scheme with them or how would you go about it no i think being there you you understand it like, and, and, and we'll all you'll all have people in your your circle as well in your network that are trades so your good dad might be able to give you a hand because he's done a little bit throughout the house that you live in and stuff. So you'll always find people that'll, that'll be able to kind of educate you a little bit and say, right, this is the first thing you do. You, you'll isolate the electrics, you'll switch off the water supply. That's right, this going, that's now that's going to knock these walls down, that's going to strip these wallpaper out, that's going to rip all the doors out, the curtains and facing. So just, yeah, I think I think getting stuck in about it for the first one is definitely um, so good. Um, you learn so much as well, and then obviously when you do, when you become to level up and, and employ builders to then carry out the refurbs, you can know when someone's taking the piss or going to try and pull the wool over your eyes because you're going to kind of have a better understanding of it. You don't need to be the expert and understand every detail of it, but if you understand the basics of the renovation, then you're just overseeing the work. But if you can, if you don't understand that basics, then somebody could quite easily come in and tell you a whole lot of nonsense, and you're you're not in a position to argue the case or, or or ask any intelligent questions to justify why they've just charged an extra grand for something that they've made up you know what i mean um so i i still i still do believe it just getting in and, and stuck about and and ripping out and if you've got friends and family that you know are an electrician or a plumber bring them along to try and show you a couple of things as well like i met my dad and my, on my first renovation um you know taught me taught me so much um how to tile he wasn't a tiler but he was like yeah turn your hand to anything just try this and you know, just showed me how, just showed me how we do a lot of plumbing work, um, electrical work, tiling, rough and joinery stuff like that. Just just showed you how to do it, and you just, you pick it up and you understand what you know how to do it. Yeah, definitely. I do think that's that's the best best way to do it. Just get stuck in it, and um, even if you're not too sure, then like you're saying, just reach out to your inner network and see what they know. But obviously, obviously, like you were saying, if you were just starting, and because if builders know that you're not that experienced, they might try and do some dirty stuff. So say you're almost mid refurb maybe 25 percent into the refurb and a builder is acting a bit dodgy they're just charging you more and more and then you find out that they are trying to do dirty in a sense how would you go forward with that would you just completely disregard that builder get a new builder in mid refurb 
and how would you essentially manage that? Um, it's a difficult one because obviously the situation I'm in at the moment, I've had to take legal action to basically cut the contract and get this guy off site. So um, yeah, it's quite difficult. But then if you were, you know, if you were project managing your own innovation and you had a, a, a plaster or a sparking or a, you know, a plumber and you've only got one section of the job, somebody else can come in the back of them quite easy and do it. But if you've got somebody that's in control of the whole job, you know, yeah, that's, that's definitely more, uh, more trickier. So yeah, starting out, I think that's the key. If you can pull in people that you know, people in your network, like if you and your, you'll, you'll be able to find someone, everyone will be able to find someone in their network that's a, that's a electrician or a plumber or a heating engineer that they can say, look, I'm looking for, I've got my first house. I'm looking for, you know, a new boiler and a new radiator supply. Can you come and give me a price? So get a couple of prices. But if you're working with somebody that's like your cousin or your cousin's friends or your brother's friend, you can, you can, uh, you know, they're going to know you and not, not to rip you off. And I think that's a good way to start as well by not, you know, trying to kind of run before you can walk. Like you, you wouldn't want to go to a builder for your first project, you know, if you were just kind of starting out. I, I wouldn't anyway. I'd want to understand the process and try and use people that you knew, that knew you as well, knew what you were trying to do. And you're obviously going to get, you've got favorable prices. Now, I think when I first started doing all my flips, I used to bring in friends and family constantly. But obviously once I started churning them out quite a lot, then that, that relationship's no longer there. Like you, because you're, you're using them for, you know, homer prices or cheap prices, then you have to get guys in to do it. And obviously then the other thing about not using friends and family as you get bigger and get more refurbs is they won't have the, they won't hold you in the hierarchy to do your job first. Your one will get put to the back burner because, oh yeah, I'm only doing a friend for my brother or it's just my cousin, you know what I mean? He, he can wait. So other jobs will keep getting pushed in front of you. So it's probably important to understand that balance that as much as you can maybe use them at, up at, at first, to learn the ropes and get your kind of feet in the door with building renovation work. Once you get to the appointment, you're quite comfortable. It's quite, it's worth then outsourcing it and getting, you know, proper joiners in and a proper electrician to do it that doesn't really know you. But by then you'll have already done a couple and you'll, you'll be able to talk, talk, walk the walk and kind of know, know that they won't be able to take the piss out of you because of how you'll conduct yourself in the conversations because you will have experience. Yeah. That that, think, yeah. And I think that's um, a really good point actually, because, like you said, if you were just starting and you had maybe friends and family who were just helping you out, you can ask those so-called silly questions. Yeah. Whereas if you used to do it with a professional builder, you don't want to look silly in front of them. So obviously once you've done uh, um, enough deals, you can progress to those more experienced builders and whatnot. So yeah, I do think that's really, really important. And in terms of your top three tips then, what would you give to someone just starting out Um for managing relationships with builders and just relationships in general on the refurb side of things? So yeah, right at the start, um, probably top tip would be get stuck in a bit of it and rip it yourself. So take take the meter readings of the property, get the keys cut, um, I'd get a key box put up at the property as well, like you know one of these key fobs that you put the code in and get the key out. Essential because you can't be there 24-7 and if you want to go and send your painter and they go and paint, um, and he's going to go and do it as a homer at night and comes in at like seven o'clock at night or ten o'clock at night. You, you want to be able to just let him go in and, and as and when he can, so you can you can keep control of who's going in and out by the key access as well from being remote. Um, next one would probably be isolate everything, rip it out, enjoy the ripper process yourself, get a feel for the property, get a feel for the full renovation. So, you know, like I say, if, you, if you've got someone in your network that's an electrician, get them out, let them inspect it with you, let them look through it. Is this okay? 
you know, can I get away with this? You know, explain the exit. I'm going to hold this in my portfolio, right? Shit needs a rewire because I'm going to keep it for 20 years. I might as well do it now at this stage, or it's going to get flipped on. It doesn't quite need a rewire, but we'll change the board. You know what I mean? They'll give you the bit of advice. We'll get these guys out once the rip out's done so they can see the property and it's kind of bare state. Uh, and yeah, start, start um, you know, speak to, speak to a local developer or somebody that flips properties or does renovations and they'll, they'll guide you through the, you know, the, the, the process and when trades come out. Um, and, and, it, and it is when you kind of start to do a couple, you realize that it's very, very simple and it's broken down. Once it's ripped out, it's, it's first fix electrical, first fix plumbing and heating. You know, it's any joinery work on making any layout changes or door changes and extensions or taking out a, a wall and stuff like that. And then once it's sheeted, it's, it's plastered and it's only finishes. It's, you know, painting, second fix electrical, second fix plumbing, fitting a kitchen, fitting a bathroom, curtains, facings and doors and flooring. Like it, it does kind of go quite systematic after that. But the first one's often um, quite overwhelming because you're like, shit, what the hell did I do here? Especially when you rip out because it does look, you know, you, you get you, keys for a nice house. Oh, this is cool. It's, this is a bit dated looking. But when you start stripping out wallpaper, ripping out the kitchens and bathrooms, you're like, shit, this is a building. Like, this is a absolute hellhole now. So it does look a lot worse after a couple of weeks of having the, the keys. But not, not yeah. it's about not, not panic and understanding the process. But yeah, I think it is obviously so important to, to make sure that you understand it yourself before obviously employing builders um, and employing trades that you don't know because like you said, they, if you were sort of a newbie and you, you didn't really know the lingo or what they were talking about, they probably would just try and rip you off. So yeah, that's some, some really good tips there, Stephen. But yeah, in terms of obviously sort of your, you, what you're doing in property now, you obviously mentioned to us before that you sort of do your own projects and then you also do a bit of sourcing for other investors. So how do you, when you're obviously looking at deals, do you have a set criteria for yourself and then a set criteria for the properties that you're going to source? And sort of how do you determine which ones you're going to keep for yourself and which ones you're going to sell on to investors? Um, yeah, um, I started sourcing probably at the start of the year when I kind of needed to add in a shorter cash flow into the business, um, which worked out well through COVID and, and uh, lockdown. Um, so I usually do, you know, flipping and buy to let. Um, so at the start of the year, I've done a couple of kind of shorter term strategies, um, which and one of them was sourcing. Um, but at the moment, I, I really just look for the properties as I'd be looking for them for myself. So they'd all be getting appraised, sourced, due diligence done based on my kind of investment criteria. Um, so if I'm, if I'm holding a property, I like to leave no money in a deal. So these are phenomenal deals. People are like, oh wow, like people would leave 15, 20 grand in a deal. But I'm like, no, I'm, I'm getting all my money back at the deal. Um, or if I'm flip, or if it's for a flip up, you know, my minimum is 20 or 25 grand profit in it, depending on you know the, the location, the location and demographics of it as well. So yeah, I'll, I'll always go about sourcing it based on I'm keeping it, I'm keeping it, I'm keeping it. And then basically once the offer gets accepted and all the deals there, then I decide which X where it's going to be exited. If I've got the cash sitting there to do it, I've got a private investor to come on, on board or a joint venture partner, I'll kind of look at all these different exits first. And if it comes to the point where, do you know what, I've just got too much projects on the go at the moment, then I'll source it on. Um, and that kind of happened with Aberdeen stuff a lot at this this year, um, was finding more and more deals that had a big list of deals. We went in lockdown. So I ended up just having this list of 
deals and off-market stuff that I had been looking at before we even went in lockdown. So I managed to touch base with all the sellers and go back and forth with them during lockdown. So I ended up getting a whole lot of deals that I couldn't I couldn't take on them, them all on uh, myself. So I ended up just selling them onto other investors through lockdown. So it was, it was really, really good. Yeah, definitely. I think that is sort of why sourcing is such a good strategy because obviously there is only so many deals that you can take on for yourself at once. And if you do have that steady deal flow coming in, then you, you're helping other people. And then you're also sort of, you're not just throwing away a deal. So yeah, I think it's yeah. such a, a good thing to, to have in your sort of, I don't know what the word is in your, um, tools. Your arsenal, yeah. yeah, your arsenal. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, such such a good tool to use. I just I just missed the uh, deal sourcing. Um, uh, probably probably maybe three years ago, four years ago, I never really knew what deal sourcing was. I just done you know my own flips, my own back lets, and I would have dismissed so many deals over the years. And I was still like, kind of even when I knew and understood it, I still kind of dismissed it, thinking like, ah, why am I want to sell them for a, a couple of grand? Like you know, I'll I'll keep it myself, make thirty grand profit, on it, or I'll keep it in my portfolio and make three hundred pound a month cash from it for the rest of my days, or you know, I always kind of had that thing that nah don't want to do that but then when you kind of when you start to kind of get this constant deal flow coming in and you've got your constant deal flow and you want to take your ones you'll handpick the ones you want for yourself and you've got these other investors sitting there that are that are choking for deals that you're producing then it's a great it's a great um it's a great cash flow it's really good yeah yeah exactly yeah and in terms of sort of obviously you only started it at the start of the year but in terms of so I think this is a lot of a thing that a lot of people who are new to sourcing struggle with. So when you sort of sell the deal to the investor and obviously you charge your sourcing fee. So at what stage do you take that fee? So do you take all the fee up front and sort of before the, the sales completed, do you take a deposit or do you just wait until the sales completed to take anything? Um, generally speaking, if it's an investor that I know or have a relationship with before and I've worked with them before, then I, I will take 50% up front for them to secure it. And once they pick up the keys and complete the deal, the other 50% is to be paid. <clears throat> but if it's an investor that I've not worked with before, it's someone new to me, um, I'll take the full fee up front because there's obviously not that kind of track record and trust being built up quite right there that I'll, that I'll take the full fee up front. Um, and I'll have in my agreement as well that if, if the fee is fully refundable if something happens with the title or the seller and they pull out the fees completely refundable. Um, but then it can it protects you as a sourcer for having done all that work and and obviously the seller that you've that you've found in a buyer if they want to pull out and it's on their reasoning then they don't get their fee back. And I, and I found that that makes people commit to a lot as well. When I first tried this um, a couple of years ago, I feel that people would waste your time and I think it's because I didn't get any, any commitment off them. I didn't take the money up front from them. So. If they decide to change their mind a few weeks down the line, now, now they're actually financially committed to it. Yeah, definitely. I think that is so important for them to have that financial commitment because you probably will get a lot of people that, and we've sort of not directly related to a deal, but we've had it where people say they're serious and then you actually ask them about betting them or proof of funds. And then that's really when you see who is serious and who isn't so yeah I think in order to determine whether is whether someone is serious you do need to sort of 
get that financial commitment up front from them. So, yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, so... Yeah, I've, I've made that mistake. I first tried deal sourcing a couple of years ago and a, and a friend of mine had, had secured a deal through, a, through an agent that I knew well, you know, they knew me well, they knew that I bought properties, I did what I said I was going to do. So I put this off on the property, um, knowing fact that he was looking for one. I kind of sourced it for him and uh, negotiated the price right. And it went on for like six weeks. I didn't take any commitment from him. And then after six weeks, you know, you know, my wife's kind of giving me a lot of hassle about this. I don't, I'm not going to be like completing anything. It's just fucked off my relationship. But my agent that I've known for like, you know, eight or nine years, they now think I'm a waste of time because I've now for once not done what I've said I'm going to do. And it, that that's, takes a couple of years to repair that relationship as well. Um, so from then, it was complete commitment free, either half up front or the full fee. And and, that's, and it's worked since then, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like you said, it, if you don't have those serious investors and you work hard to build a relationship with an agent and then you don't sort of complete on the deal, that does just, it can just ruin the relationship overnight. So yeah, um, I feel like it is so important, especially in times like this, to have good relationships with agents and you need to be protecting those. So yeah. Yeah, you you do the work up front to to build these relationships up and and, and learn your craft and you know and make sure you're you're seen to be a serious professional personal that's going to be taking this property property. If you fail to commit on what you say you go do, yeah, it just it just stings the relationship and it'll take you years. They might not even accept your offer. They might not even let you view properties after that. You know, they might just think you're a waste of time. So yeah, that's going to affect your business. So yeah, you need to kind of make sure that the investor is a, is qualified up front and pays you. The, pay, pays you the fee either up front or in full to show their full commitment because if not it's going to be detrimental to to your business yeah so obviously we've sort of touched on this a bit but in terms of obviously working with an investor then what things would you say are needed from an investor and how would you sort of i guess do your due diligence on them to make sure that they are serious and i guess you can build that long-term relationship with them yeah, I think um, knowing what the invest, investor's criteria is is, is key. Um, if you are some, if you ask an investor what their criteria is, and they just say, oh, you know, whatever, bring me anything, well, that's going to show up because kind of red flags. So they're obviously not that serious. Um, you know, it could be someone starting out and they want you to guide them and help them along. That's that's fine. You you will get that. But um, and it's difficult to qualify it to make sure you know that they're they're, they're not, especially if you're going to. If you're going to source specifically for that investor, you're going to find the investor first, figure out the investment criteria, then go and source a property for them. Then yeah, um, I'd probably be taking a commitment fee up front um, just to show that just to show that they're serious. You know, a thousand pound commitment fee up front, so and it'll come off the, your your first deal. Uh, if they're not willing to commit to that, then are they going to commit to buying a hundred thousand pound property? Probably not. So. Uh, and it works both ways. Obviously, they're going to they're going to want to see that you guys are yeah yeah or the sourcers, um, credible and got a track record and that they're doing they're doing what they say they're going to do as well. But if you can put in a kind of professional agreement and say that this is this is refundable if we don't find you something, this just comes off the first deal, and we just want to get a commitment off you that we're not working for free and stuff like that. I think that's so important because people will just have, you know trying to have you run about daft looking for deals for them and just go nah 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 I'm not interested and you've just wasted your time uh, doing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like a small fee like that, obviously, if you're just taking a thousand pound compared to the value of a property, that's that's nothing. So obviously, 
that will a lot of people probably will refuse to pay that but the ones that do you know they are serious investors and when you do give them a deal they will buy it and you won't have to sort of worry about your relationship breakdown with an agent so yeah yeah in terms of um so obviously sort of one thing that we don't really talk about often on the podcast is sort of managing your portfolio when it's scaling up so when you sort of are scaling your portfolio what would you say is the key to sort of managing all that at once so obviously once you when you've got refurbs on the go you've got properties going through conveyancing and then obviously you've got your prop your existing properties to manage i think it's key to have i mean this is for me personally i know that i've got investor friends who who don't do it this way but i really see myself as an investor and not a landlord now there's a lot of investors will self-manage their property portfolio and i just think you're just being a landlord like you're going to get involved in the day-to-day you know do you want the phone call that if someone locks yourself out of their house two o'clock in the morning you've got to go and you know, go over the spare key or there's a water leak because you know it'll be nine o'clock on a sunday when you're just waiting to get your jammies on and cuddle and watch top gear on the couch that you know the, fo- the phone's going to go so i think having the right management agent in place for me is one of the crucial parts of uh, of growing because once the renovation is done and it's compliant and it's up to the right standard. Once you give it to the management agent, then they're, they're, they're responsible for taking care of the management of the property and dealing with the day-to-day. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that definitely the right management area in place. Like even in the, my portfolio is in different spread out throughout different areas as well. There's stuff in Aberdeen, the central belt now through in Glasgow and, and they're all going to different agents um, that, that I'll kind of know and have a relationship with upfront. So I know they're going to do a good job as well. Um, so yeah, I think that that that's key, and obviously having the right guys in the ground as well, like the right electricians and plumbers and heaters and heat engineers to make sure you're getting your compliance stuff done upfront quickly before the property goes onto the lighting market as well. So important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think all of those things are so key, and obviously working with the right agent is really important because, like you said, it will make your life a lot easier, and you won't have to take those calls, like you said, when you when you're trying to get in, into your pyjamas at, at nine o'clock on a Sunday. So, yeah. Um, it's it's I think guaranteed that that'll be the time when you've got a football phone. Uh, yeah. It's just, it just sounds wasn't it? That's exactly when they'll phone. But I, I suppose it depends on your skill set as well and what your, your skill set and your personality is like in property. Now, mine's is more based on the acquisitions and hunting the deals. Like, I love getting the deals. I've also obviously got a lot of experience in the property renovations so the refurb side there the renovations to add the right value in. But once that's at that stage, that's my skill set done that I believe the skill set that somebody else might have is maybe good management and good uh, organisational skills and they might, be, they might be the one that will take on the management of the property and, and do it from there and outsource the rest of it. Because I'm kind of more doing the front, the up front, front end stuff and then giving it away, giving it away to the management agent so I can then scale up and keep, keep, um, keep on an, an acquisition trail. Yeah, exactly. I think... It is important to obviously work out what you're good at and focus on that. So, yeah. Um, So in terms of sort of, so say, obviously, you got your first property in 2006. So I assume that throughout that period, it probably would have needed some updating. So how do you sort of monitor your properties and sort of determine when a refurbishment is needed? And is there like a set number of years where you'll say, after say 10 years, I'm, I'm going to do a bit of updating to the property. 
it's quite difficult to say because a lot of the stuff that I have in my portfolio have been fully innovated at that time that I got it. Um, so I've not had a huge amount of issue. I've not had a huge amount of experience in it, but one thing I did notice a few years ago, maybe like three or four years ago, the first ever property that I got, the one in 2006, um, the tenant should been in it for, it must be nine years. Yeah, about nine, 10 years. And she'd asked to have it painted the new carpets put down. And I remember like being gobsmacked thinking, what the hell? She's wanting, what the hell? She's wanting the whole flat painted. She's wanting new carpets down there. And it wasn't until my wife had said to me, she says, look, she's just paid you 450 pounds for the last 10 years. And she's never missed a, a beat on rent. Like, and I'm kind of looking at adding up going, yeah, that's true. She kind of deserves that. Went down, um, you know, got, got the painters and got the carpets replaced and she was happy. And she did it for another couple of years before moving out. Um, but I think in general, because of that one probably will be needing done soon. The kitchen will be at the stage of, I replaced the boiler um, a couple of years ago. Um, but the way I kind of see it is as well, like if I, if I do a full renovation on a property and put it on the rental market, I'm trying to give myself about 10 years of maintenance free or as hassle free as possible. Whereas if I just had a lucky paint and was rented out, you'd constantly always get these little issues. Oh, that's the kitchen door hanging off, or the bathroom's leaking, or that's needing fixed, or the shower seal's needing done. Whereas if it's all been renovated up front, you know you're getting yourself a, a good bit of positive cash flow over the years without having to worry about too much maintenance issues. Even though I do factor in these costs in my, in my numbers, 10% against maintenance every month. Um, but the ones that have been renovated, you, you, send, you, you don't really go near them for a few years, which is good. You always obviously get breakdowns and stuff and stuff going wrong, which is fine. Um, you like to think you're getting that kind of length of period of your boilers and your kitchen, your bathrooms, all your major stuff. And and, and if anything, it's minimal uh, maintenance between tenancies. When a tenant moves out, you just get a quick image check, check it. It might just be a lucky paint, changing a bit of carpet, um, updating any compliance issues that may have changed and then renting it back out. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, if you are, like you're saying, you've, you've had those loyal tenants for 10 plus years, would you go out um, maybe increase in the price on those rents or would you see it as the fact that they've been disloyal that if they want new carpets and new paint then you just do that because you want them to stay longer or would you maybe increase the rent by I don't know how much but yeah that's a, that's a really really good point I've actually never really increased the rent on properties that they've been in and um, I, I, I think that you're rocking the boat and like you say like if you try and get a 25 pound a month or 50 pound a month rent increase and you piss off that tenant that's going to stay for another five years by the time they leave, then you've got to then remarket it, and it's going to cost a few hundred quid for marketing, and you know inventory checks, and the deposit scheme, and then obviously you probably have to go and lick it with paint and change the carpets. Then anyways, you have to spend that money. You may have that void period a month as well. Well, this is all getting done for the sake of fifty quid a month extra. If you lost six hundred pound month of rent plus the little bit of maintenance issues, it would probably take you a couple of years to claw that money back. So I tend to not put the rent up when the the, the tenants in the property. I usually do it at um, tenancy changeover. So if a tenant leaves, refresh the property if need be, but then just increase the rent when uh, the tenant leaves. I have recently, the first time ever I've increased the rent once. Um, it's only been a few months ago. And it's um, I'm selling one of the properties in my own name just because the kind of tax issues and just getting the last of the portfolio out of my own name and then the limit company. And uh, one of my JV partners, he's got a lighting agent and one of his investors, um, the key kind of passes on, properties to invest the clients at market value that are tenanted so um he's purchasing this one that's fully tenanted fully compliant but because it didn't quite tick the yield of the the for his investor 
I think it was like, I don't know, 7.8% yield. He was like, shit, I need to put your rent up 25% a month. I'm like, fuck, I'm not putting my rent up. Uh, but he says, it needs to work for this investor to buy it. I said, well, if you can put the rent up when it, when, uh, when you buy it. But they weren't, they weren't, they weren't quite ticking the box. So I had to go and put the rent up. But they didn't, they didn't plank it out. You know, I, I rocked the boat. And I said to them, I said, I don't like rocking the boat. I don't see the point in rocking the boat for 25 quid a month. But she stayed. And obviously, that sale will be going through the next few weeks. So it's not really going to affect me either way. I mean. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's not worth increasing the rent by like £25 a month when you've got such a loyal um, tenant in there anyway. Because you, like you were saying, you don't really want to rock that boat and hope that if you have raised it, you don't want them to think that you're being like cheeky and then they leave and you have to refurbish it anyway. So I do think that's a really good point. So, yeah. It's, it's, then, it's, it's same with uh, getting the market rent where you need to be. I put a property on the market um, two years ago in Aberdeen. It was like... I think it was mid-December, right before Christmas, and I knew it'd be quite tricky to let. And I put on it six fifty a month, and the tenant or the, the tenant came back to me and says, "I'll pay six two five. And at first I was like, "No, piss off! You're paying six fifty. But then I thought, "But if I wait till January to get six fifty, I've lost a month's worth of rent for twenty five pound a month extra." So I thought, "Okay, give it to you for six two five, and it's reduced that void by one month." She moved in straight away, and I didn't have a void in it. But if, if you were going to think, I think it's just going to break down the numbers and make sure everything still works. Um, it's crucial that people can kind of look at it and either get emotionally attached to it, you know what I mean, and, and not just look at the numbers and just add the numbers up. If the numbers don't work, do it. Yeah, do definitely. It. And I think, like, if you're still making money, then it's, it's just a win win for you both. Because, like you're saying, you don't want to just have a month's void over a £25 difference. So it's, it's probably the best, um, the best thing to do going forward. And then, Obviously, you said that you prefer to be more of a investor rather than a landlord. So how do you use agents to manage your properties to ensure that it's as hands-off as possible and you aren't getting those calls at two in the morning? I think having the, the, the right trusted agent on board is key because if I was kind of starting out and didn't know or, or maybe wasn't experienced, then the agents might have, you know, used markup on their, on their maintenance or you know, different call-outs or maybe done the pad testing more often than they should have needed to do. But because I'm kind of experienced, I can have that conversation up front with them or, or I've built that relationship up with them pre, before we do business together, then uh, I, I generally, they, they generally know that when the phone may tell me about an issue that my answer is going to be, it just gets sorted. Um, and it's key, it's kind of really, it's, it's, it's good for me why I like investing and adding to my portfolio in Aberdeen now the last two years because they're not on my doorstep. Whereas before, if uh, if I was getting a phone call from the letting agency and there was a, you know, there was a leak under the sink, I'd be like, oh shit, someone down the road, I'll just go and fix it to save, you know, a 50 pound call charge to the plumber and 20 quid for replacing a washer or something. I would just go down and tighten it up and, and save myself that money. But now that it's in Aberdeen, it's a couple hour drive away. It's forced me to kind of be that, definitely be that investor and say, well, no, um, send something out, fix it. There's a leak on the radio, right? Send something out, just need done. Um, and I, I generally, I try and kind of set rules, ground rules on them as well. Like if it's under a couple hundred quid, don't really need to phone me. If it's a major repair, give me a call just, to, just so I know that I'm aware of it rather than getting surprised at the end of the month when I'm checking my, my statements. But uh, yeah, generally good relationships with agents are key so you know that they're not getting ripped off with the maintenance and and, they, and they'll manage it right. And they, yeah, they keep on top of the compliance as well, which is good. Yeah, exactly. And then like like you're saying now, if it's, if it's under £100, they don't ring you, but if it's over, then they do. If it was quite a big repair job or maintenance job, would you allow them to use their own trades, the agents, or would you ensure that they use your trades because you trust them more? 
Um, it depends on the agent and the repair. Um, generally speaking, I probably would just let them use their own trades. I used to be more controlling with it and, and, and use my own guys to go and do it. But just it was if you've got a renovation on that goal, it was just more hassle for you to go and send somebody in to do a bit of maintenance on that property. So um, no, generally just let, let, them, let them go in and do it. And, and obviously through experience, you'll know that if they're hanging a blind or they're fixing the window or whatever it may be, you know you're looking at the cost of what the quote's given that they're taking the piss here or is it, or is it a, a fair a fair price? Um, so just keeping an eye on it basically. And it, it doesn't, I think, it's not spending too much time on it, but having an overview of it. Um, I was speaking to a guy recently, I don't know if this is a good comparable or not, but when you're building your own portfolio, you, you spend a whole lot of time sourcing the property to securing it to raising the finance to buy it then to then go and carry out the full renovation on it to make it compliant to then you know positive cash flow 250 quid 300 quid a month on a single let right so it's, it's just basic single let um and and I, the guy i was speaking to recently like worked offshore made a lot of money and he's like why the fuck would you do all that work and effort for that amount of time now that's an exercise i've done a couple of years ago when i was speaking to a friend of mine we had a similar conversation and i said you're right absolutely right for the first year you add to your buy letter portfolio, you're probably going to something like 10p an hour if you're, you want to value your time for money. It'll be ridiculous. Like you'll just be stripping more paper or painting or doing something, whatever it may be, your time's getting used for a whole lot. But the way I look at it now, and it's once the, when I've done my part of it and they're, they're added to the portfolio, if I just look at the spreadsheet and, you know, add my, check the, the statement once a month and time and lineage, and if I, if I even if I say, that was an hour worth of work, which it isn't an hour worth of work. It's you know more like 15, 20 minutes. Then if you're making 300 grand a month on that property, that's 300 grand an hour now going forward. So the hard work's done up front, but you're getting paid for the rest of your life and hoping that the property price is going up and the rental, the, the mortgage is coming down as you pay it down if you're on a repayment mortgage. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a long-term strategy when you're adding to a portfolio, but you've got to kind of see that bigger picture. That It's not about the here and the now, it's about the future. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really important because... Obviously, in the future, you want to be more of a armchair investor rather than having to do all this stuff yourself. So that moves me quite nicely onto my next question in the fact that towards the future, and hopefully you want to scale your portfolio significantly more, how are you planning on becoming that armchair investor where you essentially might not have to do all that initial work at the start, but your portfolio is still growing? Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a bit of unstable connection there, but I think I've got the gist of it. So how do you want to grow my portfolio yeah. in the future and like so, scale yeah. it up a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, basically um, I've joint ventured with another investor and we're, we intend on buying portfolios. So I, I bought a portfolio in Aberdeen um, last year, and I, uh, two years ago, and I found that um, with the tax changes that's going on in tired landlords, it was quite easier to find a portfolio of properties to buy rather than a kind of single unit. At a decent discount and obviously with the, with the introduction of the kind of additional dwelling supplement i figured out that if uh, you buy six or more properties then you don't pay the ads four percent it's in scotland i think it's three in england you you pay just under one percent it's like a corporation like a, a commercial kind of tax you pay on it which saves a huge amount of money and um, so there's a there's a whole lot of uh, of positives towards building the portfolio buying larger products and buying portfolios so that's definitely the route i'm going to go down i've been hunting for a portfolio for the last um you know pretty much this whole year um hunting for more portfolios to add and, and rather than doing single units i really want to kind of raise the finance to buy these portfolios and kind of asset manage like you know they'll be maybe not require huge amounts of refurbs but they'll require maybe asset managed so they'll require a little bit of renovation to add the value back up and um, 
get the, get the get the finance back out, pay the investors back off, and and grow the portfolio at a bigger scale rather than single unit at a time is very slow for me at the moment. Yeah, definitely, and I think doing that um, buying portfolios is probably one of the quickest ways to basically build up your portfolio. So, in terms of what's happening now in the market and what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks and months, how do you look to capitalizing the fact that you you are planning on growing that portfolio? So, how are you planning on taking advantage of what's going on at the moment if that makes sense are you planning on waiting until it properly dips or are you just going to jump in when you see a good opportunity yeah um i don't like waiting on the sidelines i really love taking action and just keep moving forward um so that's what's kind of made me pivot towards aberdeen it's pretty much the only area in the whole of the uk that's declining market and not an upward trend in market because of the the aberdeen follows follows the oil and gas price so that crashed about four years ago, so the market's pretty much depressed in Aberdeen. So the way I'm looking at it, I could fall further in Aberdeen. I, I, I don't know, quite possibly because of COVID and, and what's going on in the, the global economy at the moment. But um, certainly, if I'm buying right in the first place and I'm adding the right valuation, adding the right value through the renovation, once I'm refinancing, getting all my money back at the deal, I don't see the risk in what I'm doing in Aberdeen. So I'm still adding to my portfolio slowly as I'm and I'm flipping properties in the central belt. Um, I was cautious of the flips that I was doing at the moment because of what's happening in the market. And I just secured the, a cash offer. So I bought a house to flip um, for 121000 about three months ago. And I got a cash offer received on Friday. Um, should be secured today for two hundred and sixty-two and a half grand. And I really wanted to make sure this was secured up front. And they're paying a reservation fee today. They're, they're sending the message from a couple of weeks. They're paying more a deposit. But more importantly, just because I didn't want to rely on the uncertainty of the market and say, well, I can't sell it until the six months is up in, you know, in January. Um, so rather than wait till the, the new year, the renovation's finished, go and put it on the market. As, as the market wobbled, will I get what I was wanting for it? And, you know, as the market declined, there's more, as people not buying at that level and stuff like that. So I thought, now's the time to exit if I can exit. So um, I'm, I am cautious that the market's changing and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to pin the box clever a little bit. Um, if I can get the cash in out from this cash investor, then I can sit there with, with more of my own cash to invest as well. And obviously, um, still working and building up relationships with other investors to, to take advantage of the market when it when it does go when it does go on a downward spiral. Hopefully, I can pick up some good deals. Just and we all know as well, you 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 make the money in property when you actually buy it. This is a flip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think is obviously it's hard to sort of. It's hard to know what to do at the moment, but I think as long as you're conser- conservative with your numbers and, like you said, you are sort of pulling your money out and adding the value to the property, then there is no real reason why you shouldn't go for a deal if it is a good deal and it still stacks up when you've been conservative. So, yeah, I think obviously it's important to, to make sure you um, de-risking, but if the deal is good, then you should still go for it. But then at the same time, I guess there is sort of a crash due, so you've. I think you've got I think because of... I, I I kind of so tight my investment criteria as well, like my stuff that I add to my own portfolio. I know that I want all the money back out. If something happens in the market or I get downvalued and I have to leave five or ten grand back in it, well, it isn't the fucking biggest problem, is it? Because you've still got a whole lot of equity in it, and you've just left a lot of bit of money in it. They need to figure a way of making it back by doing another flip or another project or selling another couple of package deals. It's fine. But uh, so I think the downside that is just the, the positive is just far more outweigh the, down, the downsides for me. So yeah, I think if you're just being 
just being a little bit coy with the market at the moment, but you're still you're still doing your due diligence and still being thorough with your numbers. And I think the key right now, and I see a lot of investors have been, basically a lot of investors are becoming motivated buyers. They're so anxious to keep moving in this hot market that they're actually paying more and more money for the property. And I'm thinking you're just, you're just, you're, you're, you're playing like an amateur. You're, you're, you're spending more than you should be you're buying that. You're not following your numbers. You're not following your investment criteria. You're just going, I don't want this deal. I've not had nothing for six months or four months. I'm just wanting to get something over the line. But um, I think that's where the dangers will lie because you'll pay more emotionally attached to it, end up paying more. And if the market does go down, then you could be in maybe not quite negative equity, but you could be quite sitting with a, a, a turn in your portfolio for quite a while. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's sort of why it's so important to look at a property as a long-term game because that is where most of the wealth is built. That is where sort of it becomes passive, like you said, in the first sort of few years of building your portfolio that's where you're going to be doing the most work and getting the least reward and then it's just a snowball effect from there so yeah I think it is obviously so important to to take the long-term view of it yeah so sort of moving towards the end of the, the podcast then if you could go back and give your younger self or yourself before you got into property three top tips what would they be mm, it's a tough one um as much as I says to get a bit involved yourself and rip out and get involved as much as you can, I think I maybe done it too much at the start and I've done it for probably too long that I'm finding myself quite hard to break the habit of being myself and come away from it a lot. So you can find yourself just nipping back in and just getting involved a little bit too much when you shouldn't be working in the business rather than type it on it. So yeah, that'd be one tip is to kind of know, know detach from enough to do it a little bit and but know that that's not going to be what you would do for the rest of your days and probably um the, i think the one the the main tip i would say is have your end in mind what's your goal in property like be clear on what you want out of property is it you know this fancy lifestyle is it a financial freedom is it time freedom whatever it may be what you're thinking to look honestly at yourself and understand who you are and what you want out of it now you know, not follow someone else and what someone else's goals is and what they're doing in property. Just what do you want specifically for it? If you've got that, then if you can figure that goal out, you start you can start a path to it. You can start figuring out exactly you know what that looks like. Um, and obviously that'll dictate kind of what strategies you get in because there's so many different strategies in property depending on who you are and what your your experience is and what your personality is and what your strengths and weaknesses are and what what resources you've got available as well. Have you got a big pot of cash or a, you know a family member a big pot of cash that you can borrow or if you're not you're starting with nothing so all these um, all these points are, are going to be what dictates what path you go in property so i think that's really clear i think people would jump i, would, I probably jumped in without knowing as well didn't have a clue didn't have a path didn't have a, a clear goal just knew that i wanted to involve property and that was it so i think that'd be a, another point tip as well um, it's just to make just have that clear clear goal clear path and exactly where, where you're going to as well um, with it and yeah brilliant the third one get educated um, I didn't get educated I figured it all myself I mean don't get me wrong social media wasn't that big back then I think it was just kind of starting out a lot so there wasn't many like social media groups and you know networks like you can do right now and on online where you can network with people all over the world if you want to and, and learn what you want um, I didn't do that. I just figured it out myself and didn't even really read any books. So I think definitely there's so much available right now, reading books and podcasts and 
you know, social media platforms and private groups. And there's so much available that you'd be fooled to jump in with both feet without getting educated. Now. So I think spend that time up front and get an education as well. This is so crucial. And I'd definitely give that tip to my younger self. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that is because the obviously you learn loads by just sort of jumping in, but you probably could have sort of saved yourself a lot of time and money if you'd spent the sort of six months or a year up front getting that good education and actually sort of knowing how to run the numbers and sort of the basics of a refurb. So yeah, um, I think that's, that's a really good tip, but yeah, in terms of sort of any special mentions, is there any sort of special mentions that you want to give to anyone? Special mentions. It's just when I've got the shirt of my wife. Yeah. Uh, do you know what we joke about it, but it's probably key to have that kind of support network and structure around you as well. Because um, I like to go kind of balls to the wall with a lot of stuff that you do, and you kind of you put not not you always always risk analysis everything before you do it. But without that support network around you, just kind of believing in you and knowing that you're not going to fuck it up, then I think that's important. So yeah, definitely, um, that's that's key. Yeah, That'd definitely. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's been great to have you on, Stephen. We've really enjoyed it. And yeah, I think you've given some some really good tips and insights into sort of, yeah, what it's like to, to grow a, a good property portfolio. But yeah, um, really, really enjoyed it, Stephen. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's been nice to share the story and chat with you guys. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys grow over the next few years as well.